0: So today's speaker, August Wallmeyer, has been involved with the the Virginia General Assembly in a variety of capacities since 1972, beginning as a broadcast news writer, then as local radio and television correspondent, a speech writer for the Attorney General of Virginia on behalf of a utility company, and as executive director of a trade association that invested $3.5 billion in electricity-generating facilities in the Commonwealth. He is currently president of August Wallmeyer Communications Limited, a public relations governmental affairs consulting firm representing a wide variety of clients in energy, fuels, waste disposal, and other industrial fields. And he is the author of The Extremes of Virginia, copies of which he will be happy to sign for you after the lecture, so please uh, help me give a warm wel- welcome to Augie uh, uh who will talk to us about the extremes of Virginia.
1: <clears throat> well, thank you very much, Andy. That was a very nice introduction. I appreciate it. It is a real pleasure and honor for me to be here giving the Banner Lecture today and thank you all for coming. My wife Kathy and I are members of the Historical Society and have been to many Banner Lectures here over the years and I uh, hope that I can meet the high caliber of many of those speakers that we've seen here for a very long time. But since we're at the Historical Society, I'd like to start off by telling you a brand new historical fact that I learned recently on a tour of the Gettysburg battlefield in Pennsylvania. And as we were touring around a group of people in a tour led by a National Park Ranger, one of the tour members asked this question. Mr. Ranger, he said, why is it that so many of the Civil War generals chose to fight their battles inside national parks. <laughs> <laughs> the ranger's answer was just as good. He said, well, I think it's because we have all these paved roads and it made it so much, <laughs> so much easier to move the cannons around. The success of my book has, frankly, greatly surprised me, and the Richmond Times-Dispatch is largely responsible for getting the word out. The book has been out for not quite a year. It's in its fourth smaller printing. Public radio and TV have covered it extensively, and lots of other groups have been kind enough to ask me to come and speak. But the Times-Dispatch, frankly, is largely responsible for getting the word out because it printed those four lengthy excerpts of the book on four consecutive Sundays last summer, which greatly raised the visibility of the book, which was nice for me, but it also, more importantly, brought lots of attention to the issues confronting Virginians who live in the extremes. So... I would like to start by recognizing the Times-Dispatch and its commitment to public service, and in particular, its publisher, Tom Silvestri, and commentary section editor, Bob Rayner for doing that public service on behalf of Virginia. Thank you very much, yes. I wrote the book because I became convinced after 40-some years of being associated with the Virginia General Assembly. I started, by the way, when I was eight. (laughs) I became convinced that there was a profound lack of understanding about Southwest, Southside, and the Eastern Shore of Virginia among governmental officials, with some important exceptions. But I really didn't think the members of the legislature the current legislature, or any that I've been involved with for the last 30, 40 years, or the current administration, again, this one or any for the last 30, 40 years, that they really understood and uh, what the situations were in the extremes. Today, in Virginia, more than 50% of our legislators were born somewhere else. And that's not at all a bad thing. They have come here with new viewpoints, new ideas, new understanding of tough problems, all of which has helped Virginia. But I think it does point out that many of them didn't know and don't know much about the rest of Virginia, especially the rural areas. And my simple-minded view of the world was, that if they don't understand the situations in the extremes, it's pretty unlikely that they will stumble across anything to really help. And so that's why I wrote the book. Let me give you a quick description of the areas that I've called the extremes. Far southwest Virginia, primarily the coal-producing region of the state. Southside Virginia, the old furniture, textile, tobacco, and manufacturing belt The counties that essentially border the North Carolina line, or you can think of it in terms of from Franklin to Franklin, that is the county of Franklin on the western side and the city of Franklin on the eastern side of what we refer to as Southside Virginia, and the eastern shore, those two counties at the southern end of the Delmarva Peninsula. Now, a very quick flyover, if you will, of the extreme starting in Southwest to bring you up to speed with what I have found and what's included in the book. This is what many people think when they think of Southwest Virginia. Derelict factories, abandoned buildings, factory towns that no longer are vibrant and working. Or they think about this, the steady decline of coal mining of mining jobs, the mainstay, at one time, of the economy of Southwest Virginia. Very high unemployment. Or as my friend Jack Kennedy, who is clerk of the court in Wise County, said of people from Southwest Virginia, he said, most of us are artists, meaning we draw checks from the federal government. And he says in Wise County today, more than 50% of the people who live there receive one or more forms of government assistance. But here's another snapshot of Southwest Virginia. The data show Southwest compared to the state as a whole. Declining population in Southwest Virginia in the first five years of this decade, the population has decreased almost 2.5% while the population of all of Virginia has increased better than 4%. Young people especially are fleeing Southwest Virginia in search of jobs and opportunity. Many more people without health insurance, low employment, high unemployment, an exceedingly high rate of poverty, 18.2% compared to almost 12% for the state, a very high suicide rate, and major problems, especially opioids and methamphetamines. Now a quick look at Southside, Virginia. Many people have this view of Southside, the former home of Virginia's manufacturing, tobacco, and textile industries. And in a single century, the last century, Southside became an economic powerhouse. It was the financial engine of Virginia. Southside in those days actually generated so much money in tax revenue that it basically financially supported little outposts like Fairfax County. (laughs) Things have changed a lot. Southside created thousands of jobs in manufacturing and textiles and tobaccos, made many people very wealthy, and then seems to have become complacent, de-emphasized the need for education. Many people in Southside would tell me the story of in the good old days, if you were employed at one of the textile mills or the furniture factories, and for whatever reason that you lost your job in the morning, chances were pretty good you'd have another job, maybe a better job, by lunchtime. Now, uh, Southside did not foresee changes in the global economy, changes in commerce, did not foresee the effects of reduced tobacco use, and slid into decline where it is now lots of decrepit factories and abandoned businesses. But there is some progress. Here's the same building you saw a moment ago and an example of some renovation and good things that are happening. This is in Danville. Like Southwest, Southside has pockets of beautiful scenery, picturesque towns like this one in Clarksville. And for those who have jobs or money or both, it is a beautiful, wonderful place to live. But again, the data, many of the same problems as Southwest Virginia, declining population as young people leave in droves, fewer people working, more unemployment than Virginia as a whole, nearly double the rate of poverty. But to its credit and for reasons no one that I have found has yet been able to explain, Uh, lower suicide rates and fewer drug fatalities than Virginia as a whole. Now go to the beautiful Eastern Shore, which is a quiet, tranquil, beautiful place that for lots of legislators is essentially out of sight and out of mind, in the words of State Senator Linwood Lewis. The Eastern Shore, he says, truthfully, is a political orphan somewhat because of its physical isolation, separated from the mainland by the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, so remote that it is still today occasionally left off official state maps of the Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam is from the Eastern Shore, and I had the privilege of interviewing his elderly father in doing the research for this book. And his father said to me that if it wasn't for the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, There are lots of people in the Eastern Shore who would still be living essentially in colonial times. But the Eastern Shore also has high-tech launch facilities. The Mars facility that is the Mid-Atlantic regional spaceport is there. It has a wonderful backbone of high-speed internet, thriving agriculture and aquaculture and recreation are all signs of encouraging future prospects for those who seek change on the eastern shore. But again, those pesky data come back and show it has much in common with Southwest and South Side and many differences with what I'm calling ROVA, the rest of Virginia. Declining population, twice as many more without health insurance, higher unemployment, higher suicide rate, much higher poverty rates, and higher fatal opioid drug overdose rates. Eastern Shore of Virginia. Well, let's step back a minute and think a little more broadly about America's rural areas and what some others are saying. The Wall Street Journal did an interesting uh, article a couple of weeks ago, perhaps you saw it, and said that rural America is now the new inner city, and this is a fundamental shift in our economy and in our social fabric. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, where today are teenagers most likely to get pregnant? Not the inner city anymore, rural areas. Where are working age men most likely to be unemployed? Not the inner city, now rural areas. Broken homes. In 1980, rural areas were the least likely places to find divorces. In 2015, they had become the most likely places. In 1980, inner cities ranked worst in seven of nine major categories. Now, rural areas rank worst in all nine categories. In terms of poverty, college attainment, teenage births, divorce, death rates, from heart disease and cancer, reliance on federal disability insurance and labor force participation, rural counties rank the worst in the United States. And lots of others independently have done studies and agree. Very recently, in a report by the United Way of Southwest Virginia, it has counted people that it refers to as ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained and importantly, employed people. United Way says such folks are the forgotten middle of those in need because they don't meet federal poverty requirements, because they make a little bit too much money, but they're not out of the woods in terms of being able to make it. To be clear, these people, these Alice people, are not the people who can't afford to buy the new iPhone, or to subscribe to HBO. These are the people who struggle for basic necessities, struggle to pay their mortgages or rent. They attempt to save for a rainy day, to buy their children the most basic of school supplies. People essentially who are one car repair bill away from major financial disaster. And the United Way of Southwest Virginia says there are one million of such people in Virginia today. Now sure, there are lots of other areas that have extreme poverty and have some of the same problems. But uh, I'm reminded, one of the first interviews that I did for this book was with a minister in a church, a beautiful, wealthy church in prosperous Williamsburg, Virginia. He had been sent there very recently after spending seven years in southwest Virginia. And his message to me was correct. He said, Augie, there are lots of poor people everywhere across Virginia. In this church, in wealthy, beautiful Williamsburg, Virginia, there are two families with children who live in the woods behind the church, in tents, who use our restrooms and use our showers, and whose kids catch the school bus out in front of the church. So his point is well taken. There are poor people and people in great need everywhere. But the problems in the areas that I have called the extremes are so common and so long-lasting, so intransigent, that I think they really do constitute a separate Virginia. That's one that we don't see here in the Capitol. Well, if you're not depressed enough already, (laughs) let's talk about illegal drugs for a moment. Here are the top three causes of death in Virginia. You may know that in 2013, drug deaths overtook both gun and motor vehicle deaths and became the number one cause of death in Virginia. Again, notice here the trend line beginning in 2012 and 2013 when fatal drug overdoses became the number one method of unnatural death in Virginia. There's another way to consider that trend line Statewide, the rate of fatal drug overdoses has increased 5.9% each year, year over year, for the last 16 years in Virginia. Now think about that. Has your retirement savings increased 5.9% each year, year over year, or your 401k, or anything else that you know of? I think the answer is no, at least it is for me. Drug overdoses are a huge and growing problem in Virginia. A few details. Many more males are dying from drug overdoses than females, and it is not what most people think. It is not the young gangbangers. Fatal overdoses are mostly happening to middle-aged males in the 25 to 54-year-old age bracket. Look specifically now at overdose deaths from opioids, sales, and treatment admissions. As sales of opioids, the top green line, increased, by the way, while the manufacturer was falsely claiming that Oxycontin was not addictive, while sales increased, opioid deaths, the red line, increased, and admissions for treatment increased correspondingly in Virginia. Another way to think about the opioid problem. Remember the horror and public outrage over the Virginia Tech massacre 10 years ago. 33 people lost their lives. Now today in Virginia, the number of opioid deaths equals a Virginia Tech massacre every week. 1,400 opioid deaths are expected to happen occur in Virginia this year. And this is where those problems are. Yes, the blue areas, the darker areas in southwest Virginia, perhaps you would expect. You'll see other areas shaded in south side Virginia and the eastern shore, but also look at northern Virginia. This is a problem consuming our state and affecting virtually every part. Now think about the related problems of heroin and fentanyl. Here is evidence that the drug wholesalers and pushers are pretty savvy business people who know that if you can lower the cost of production, you can make more money. Because oxy is expensive, addicts often turn to heroin. Drug suppliers, though, mix a substance called fentanyl with heroin, which makes it both cheaper for them to produce and provides the addict a more intense high because fentanyl is much, much stronger than heroin. Addicts end up buying what they think is heroin, but the mixture with fentanyl being much more potent, the result is that the users accidentally overdose, many of them, and die. Think it doesn't affect you? Aside from the monetary and human costs to the drug users, there are significant public health costs for the rest of us that we're all bearing. For example, there is a remarkable rise in the exposure to hepatitis C due to needle sharing, and Richmond, where we are today, has the dubious distinction of having the highest rate in Virginia. And the Centers for Disease Control reports that HIV outbreaks related to needle sharing are now likely to occur in Buchanan, Dickinson, Lee, Wise, Tazewell, Patrick, and Wythe counties in Southwest Virginia. And despite all the public attention, all the work of state and federal public health professionals and many others, as of today, the word from the state health department is There is no end in sight. So are opioids and heroin and fentanyl the only major drug problems in Virginia? Unfortunately, not. Let's consider methamphetamines. Meth, hillbilly heroin, chalk, ice, crystal, do-it-yourself heroin. Call it what you want, it has now replaced the moonshine stills of the last generation in Southwest Virginia. Methamphetamine is a powerful, highly addictive stimulant that affects the central nervous system. It's a very dangerous and deadly drug, very hard to kick. The recidivism rate, the failure rate for people who try to leave methamphetamine use is 93%. Think about that largely because if you are convicted of a methamphetamine offense, if you are lucky enough to be sent to a state drug court, and if you are lucky enough to find the judge who will try to send you to a treatment center, and if you are lucky enough that the treatment center has a place for you, chances are still 93% that you're going to fail because you can't stay there long enough to overcome the psychological and the physiological dependencies that this drug causes. So you return home to where your family, your neighbors, your friends, maybe all of the above are making and using and selling methamphetamine. Meth and heroin and opioids are available everywhere. And I'm told by state health officials that if you know who to call, and it's easy to find out, if you know who to call, you can have meth or heroin or opioids delivered right to your front door, just like a pizza. And you can pay for it with a credit card. Meth is a particular problem today in southwest Virginia. But in the words of the state police investigator I interviewed, it is spreading like a cancer into the Shenandoah Valley and eastward throughout Virginia. Well, if you're still not depressed enough yet, (laughs) let's talk about unemployment and jobs for a moment. The favorite topic of our governor, who very recently announced the official unemployment rate for Virginia had hit a 43-year low down to slightly less than 4%, which really sounds good. But this shows another view of the same reality, how misleading the official unemployment statistics can be, especially if you are underemployed or unemployed. And it also shows how many fewer people are working in the extremes compared to Virginia as a whole. So when you compare that just over half the civilian population in the labor force is actually working, how do you square that with the official 43 year low and the official unemployment rate? Well, economists can explain those numbers. The numbers largely exclude people who have given up looking, of course, but many, many people tell me they just don't believe the government statistics. Well, look at education for a moment, because many, many people, including me, think education is the key to improving life situations, such as unemployment, health care, job skills, and so forth. This is a very stark example of how there are two distinctly different, separate Virginias. Read this quote from the chancellor of our community college system, who says, if it were its own state, the rural areas, they would be dead last in the nation in educational attainment, And the other Virginia, the Golden Crescent, Northern Virginia through Fredericksburg to Richmond to Hampton Roads would be number two. Overall, educational outcomes are considerably worse in rural areas and in poor urban and suburban areas, both for high school graduation and college graduation rates too. High school grads lag far behind Virginia in the extremes and college graduation rates in the extremes are less than half of the statewide average. Now look a moment at where our unemployment and educational problems intersect, how we train our young people for successful careers and successful lives. How successful are our efforts and the dollars we spend to train young people and not so young people to have gainful employment In the words of a state bureaucratic, questioned by a legislator, well, we just don't really track that. Our former Secretary of Commerce and Trade said about workforce training in Virginia, there are 24 different programs, eight or nine state agencies, four different secretariats involved. If the world were yours or mine, we wouldn't structure it that way, but because of the federal government's requirements, we must and it's yet one more example of the difficulty or inefficiency in the federal-state relationship. Well, let's recap quickly what we've talked about so far. In the extremes, the population is shrinking and especially young people are moving away, and I'm not at all sure that Virginia understands the ramifications of an older, grayer population and what it means if it continues for another decade or two. High school and college graduation rates significantly lower, and again, I'm not sure that we realize the long-term effects of an inadequately educated population, especially now as we struggle with federal defense cutbacks and struggle to entice new high-tech employers to Virginia. Significantly more lack health insurance, the labor participation rate fully 10% lower. What is the long-term effect on social services, on unemployment compensation, on continued and increasing dependence on the government. Household income 40% less, poverty rate 67% higher, the suicide rate 18.8% higher, opioid death rates 56% higher, and health rankings in the rural areas of Virginia that I've called the extremes are in the bottom one-third Of Virginia. Well, if you are poor, speaking of health rankings, even if you are a working poor person in Southwest or Southside or the Eastern Shore, you probably know about RAM, the Remote Area Medical Clinic. This one in Wise County about two weeks ago was the 18th annual such event in Wise County. This is where if you sleep in your car, and stand in line starting at about midnight, you might be one of the lucky ones admitted for free health care at 7 a.m. Or you might be turned away to wait until tomorrow or perhaps to wait until next year. There's a small army of volunteer doctors, nurse practitioners, nurses, helpers, and others who offer cardiovascular help, dental extractions, audiology, ENT diagnosis and treatment, diabetes counseling and management, optometry, and lots of other health-related services. They'll make you a pair of free eyeglasses, they'll give you new false teeth, they'll fill your prescriptions, they'll give you new or gently used clothes and shoes, or they'll even give you children's books for your kids if you can't afford them. And at the end of this three-day outdoor free health clinic, which is held by the way in tents and livestock staples that were used the week before for the county fair, the dentists who call themselves the moms, the missions of mercy, the dentists will measure their success by how many buckets of extracted teeth they pulled this year compared to last year. This is here, this is in Virginia. Think we're the envy of the world? Here's a documentary video crew from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, reporting on the state of healthcare in rural Virginia two weeks ago. Well, here's another way to look at health care and life expectancy, perhaps the most basic way of all. If you live in the extremes, how long will you live on average? The first nine counties listed are all in Southwest Virginia, and the red numbers indicate the number of years on average that you will die earlier than the Virginia average. Here's the same information, but adding in mortality rates for some nations. And the good news is that if you live in Wise County, Virginia, you likely will live longer than if you lived in Trinidad but your life expectancy will be less than if you live in Nicaragua or Uzbekistan or Latvia or Serbia or Algeria or Colombia. But also notice this if you live in Fairfax, Virginia, your average life expectancy is 10 and a half years more than if you lived in Wise County. Well, we've gone through a lot of information and it ultimately leads to a point where you ask, what do we do? If anything, and I say, if anything, because speaking for myself, I would not want to change or disrupt what makes each part of the extremes unique and wonderful, I would not want any part of the extremes to become like Northern Virginia or Richmond or Norfolk. And there really are at least two competing views, one, is a minister in Big Stone Gap who doesn't favor any changes, really, and says to me, candidly, that if people here didn't like it, they would have gone somewhere else long, long ago. And there are people who think that way sincerely. But I have found many others who want access to better education, to better health care, to jobs, and to opportunity. And like a supervisor in Accomack County on the Eastern Shore, he said, Don't treat us like second-class citizens. We want parity with the rest of Virginia. My conclusion is that we need expert help. I have really nothing but affection and admiration for the Virginia General Assembly. I've been there for a long time, as was said earlier, and I am not critical of state government except, perhaps, for not realizing how badly people in the extremes need help. But I feel very strongly that we need an infusion of more expert, outside, and unbiased help to tackle some of our most persistent long-term and lingering problems. We need help from people with more and more varied experience, global knowledge, familiarity with similar problems in other places, and in other cultures. Some of the problems in the extremes are decades old, some are centuries old, but we do have the resources to try different approaches, to challenge our assumptions, and to seek new methods. The alternatives are complacency and acceptance, both of which, I think, are unacceptable. The alternative is to say passively to the 10% of Virginians who live in the extremes, well, good luck and figure it out yourself. Virginia, unlike most states, is a commonwealth, and I think that label is meaningful. It is a commonwealth and it is time to think differently and to think bigger. My advice to the legislature and governor and to business and civic leaders and other interested persons, including you, is that we do need some band-aids now, for education especially, and for law enforcement and drug enforcement, but we need to understand the why of these problems as we think about long-term strategies. We need to plant seeds now that will grow and mature in the next several decades. We need, in short, to take the long view and address the underlying causes and the issues. The first and biggest challenges, in my view at least, are that it is imperative to stop young people, especially, from leaving the extremes. That means they need good jobs, which means they need employers, they need companies, which means we need better education, which means more money or more effective money for education, for schools and for teachers. They also need role models, which they sorely lack today. Well, how do we do it? I'm gratified that there is now a small group of people thinking about these problems and proposing solutions. Here are some ideas from the editorial staff of the Roanoke Times newspaper, which has been advocating for a new approach. The paper has asked the candidates for governor to agree to this contract with rural Virginia to raise the skill level of the workforce, which means education and workforce training, to give a comparative tax advantage to rural Virginia to entice businesses to go there and to stay there, to address school disparity, which means change the school funding formulas and increase the dollars, even if it means more taxes, and to improve broadband speed and access, both for education and for business. And there are lots of other ideas, too. People are very, some people are very interested in ecotourism as being a revenue source and a jobs creator. Some people are interested in the legalization of cultivation of marijuana, which the legislature is studying today and has not yet made a decision on. Some people have even proposed relocating some state agencies to the extremes to take advantage of that high-speed internet system that we have built with money from the Tobacco Commission. And some people favor cross-pollinization, if you will, of students who attend UVA in Charlottesville with students who attend UVA in Wise. The good news is that more and more people are becoming aware of these problems. The bad news is today there's really no consensus about what to do. These are some of the ideas uh, uh, announced recently by Stephen Murray, the new head of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, and some of these are very similar. Expand computer science, more workforce training, reduce taxes, offer incentives to companies going to rural Virginia, and create mixed-use developments to attract young people who, he is convinced, will not go to a rural area that doesn't have a Starbucks or a performing arts theater, or a decent library, or a place where young people can congregate and have an experience that they can't have today in a rural areas. But I note as good as these ideas might seem to be that from my perspective, the focus here seems to be only on jobs and dollars, which are very important, but these goals don't address the problems of drug use or the lack of health care and so forth. Well, not surprisingly, there are lots of different suggestions, which is why I say again, that I think we need some expert help. But this is a big job, and it's a generational problem. And it's not going to be easy to solve it or to fix it or to improve it. And so I think it's fair to ask, do we have the resources? Do we have the money to tackle a problem this big? I think the real question is, can we afford not to tackle this problem? Our current two-year budget in Virginia tops out at a little better than $104 billion, meaning that we are on average spending a billion dollars a week in Virginia, and I contend that surely we can find some way to spend some serious money, several millions of dollars or more, to find solutions or workable remedies to these long-term intransigent problems. But I also think it's fair to ask the question, can these situations be improved or be bettered? I think the answer is yes. Improvements can come, even to difficult, long-standing generational situations with effort, time, and resources, and importantly, with government, business, civic leaders, the religious community, and others all working together. And I use this example, consider cigarette smoking. The Centers for Disease Control reports that adult smoking in 1965 was 42.5% of the population and it has now declined to 16.8%. That's for a product that is an ingrained, chemically addictive product. And it shows, I think, the result of government, public, private efforts all working together. And I think it shows that very tough problems perhaps are not insoluble, that they can be improved with time by working together. For cigarette smoking, you ask yourself, have we solved that problem? And the answer is, of course, we have not. But have we made significant and major progress? And I think the answer is yes, we have. One more quick example of changing the culture, changing long-term ingrained habits and practices. MIT and Georgetown found out recently from a study that mobile banking, the use of these cheap, inexpensive cell phones, has lifted 194,000 Kenyan households out of extreme poverty. How is that possible? Now they can do what we can do with your iPhones or your Androids. With mobile money, they can send and receive money by cell phone avoiding personal travel, eliminating the need to get on a bus to send money to your relatives in a neighboring village and miss work and miss a day's pay. Has this small, inexpensive technology cured the problem of poverty in Kenya? No. Has it made a positive difference? Yes, especially for those 194,000 Kenyan households. Well. At this point, I ask myself, can my little book or can any book solve these problems? And obviously, the answer is no. If you read books or write books or like books, these statistics will depress you a little bit more. (laughs) 33% of high school grads never read another book. 42% of college grads never read another book. 70% of US adults haven't been to a bookstore in five years, and 80% of families, U.S. families, didn't buy or read a book last year. But we can, I think, working together, make a difference by trying to energize government and governmental leaders about these problems. I have uh, some measure of success noting that the two candidates running for governor right now are starting to talk more and more about the problems of rural Virginia, and I think that's wonderful. But we also need to motivate business, and I think it's important to say to you that you should not think of these problems only as government's problems. Businesses can hire and train and mentor and counsel young people. Civic leaders also have a role, as do educational leaders who need more dollars and more encouragement and more participation. We need to share our successes and listen more than we talk. Well, my goals for the book were to start a public conversation, and I think I've been partially successful so far, and to engage others to think and suggest and to act. My wife has begun calling this the little book that could. (laughs) Because it has, its success has greatly surprised us Uh, I would like to stand here and tell you that I think that's because it is a wonderfully written (laughs) and beautifully researched book. But the truth is, I think the book has been successful because people are interested, don't know about these situations, and Virginians are caring and compassionate people, and once they find out about these problems, they want to learn more, and they want to know what they can do to help. My ultimate goal for the book is to point the way towards a commonwealth where every man, woman, and child has the opportunity to gain the food, shelter, work, education, and health care they need to live lives of dignity, of justice, and hope. This is not true in Virginia today. Many people in Virginia, by virtue of poor education or geography or their culture or their habits and other factors, do not have the opportunity to succeed, no matter how hard they try, no matter how motivated they are. They can't pick themselves up by their bootstraps because they don't have any boots, and they don't have any way to get any boots. I think it's up to us to give them a helping hand and do what we can to improve their situations. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, Very interesting talk. Uh, In your research, uh, Have you come across rural areas in other states that uh, have found at least a partial solution to these problems? The short answer is no. Um, Other states have similar problems. You can go to southwest Virginia, for example, and find conditions very much like Tennessee, like uh, eastern Tennessee, like western North Carolina. Uh, I have not found... In my limited research, and I'm a one-man band here, but I have not found any state that's taken on the scope or the broad palette of these types of problems in any organized way. Lots and lots of little programs that we in Virginia have tried and other states have tried as well, with mixed success. Some have worked, some have not. But I've not found any state that has done anything meaningful. That's come to my attention. Yes, sir. What are the politics of the area? In other words, what percentage are Democrats and what percent are Republicans in the various areas? Well, there was a guy in southwest Virginia who voted for Hillary Clinton, but they ran him out.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, the serious answer to your question is of uh, the three areas that I've described. Southwest Virginia is primarily and overwhelmingly Republican and voted for President Trump. Southside Virginia is more half-and-half Democrats and Republicans, and the eastern shore tends to be more Democratic and liberal in, in social issues and concerns than the other two areas. So it's a mixture, in other words. And I don't find any real correlation between the politics that I have observed and the problems that I've observed. An excellent talk on a a very complex uh, and frankly sad uh, situation. It suggests, and I think the earlier question uh, comes to that, there have been no statewide organized efforts. It seems to suggest a need for a comprehensive plan. If so, how could that come to be here in Virginia? Well, that's uh, said in different words. What I'm recommending to the legislature is that we need people who have the talent and the experience in these various disciplines and other places to come to Virginia to take the time to thoroughly understand our problems and present us with a plan. Some of the things that I talked about uh, in, the, in the talk here, uh, lowering the tax rates and so forth and making educational changes. are are needed. They need to be done. But in my view, they don't really address the core, basic problems, and that's what I think we desperately need. There are people in the world, there are consultants globally who do this type of work. They do it principally for nations as opposed to for states, but they do it, and there are some smart people. I have, as I said, not to be redundant, but lots of... um, affection and admiration for the Virginia General Assembly, but this is frankly a part of the problem. This is a map showing Virginia's 100 House districts where the members serve two-year terms. This is the Senate where the members serve four-year terms. Now let me be clear, there are some exceptions to this. There are some legislators who think long-term and are big-picture people who look at the whole ball of wax and are trying to figure out solutions. But there are also a lot of members of the legislature who are worried two years down the road to get elected again, or four years down the road to get elected again, and who don't really take the time or have the opportunity to look at these long-term generational problems. That's why my suggestion is we need independent, nonpartisan people to come in and take a look at the fundamental causes and make some sensible strategic long-term suggestions that will improve things. I have a very close dear friend who's helped me in this effort after I wrote the book and in our first serious conversation he asked me a profound question. He said, "Augie, you know, if you're successful in starting this conversation and successful in starting a series of changes to make these improvements, what's the time frame? And the answer, I think, as I said to him, is the time frame is that neither he nor I would be alive to see much progress, but we might be alive to see the beginning of a process and the beginning of some progress, and that's my hope. This is not going to be solved easily and quickly. I understand that. I get it. Believe me. Lots of people have told me that. But I'm also convinced it's not going to be solved at all if we sit on our hands and ignore it. I hope that answers your question. Yes, just, sir. just to ask you, you're going to be briefing the legislature, is what what I understood. With that in mind, how can they come up with an action plan? Action plan, where we can get people involved in going to the south, southwest, or to the areas that are, that are suffering and starting to work on some of the issues that's a really good question and and that's a part of what I think the independent consultants and experts could help us to understand you can entice some people to go there and help as I said with taxes or with money or lots of financial measures the harder problem to attack I think is changing the mindset and changing the culture and changing the deep-seated traditions And that's very difficult. It's not impossible. I also, not to um, um, contradict myself, I also don't suggest and never would suggest that we try to make Southwest Virginia be like Herndon or Richmond. They need to stay as they are, but they need also to find vehicles to improve their situation in life and to give their kids some opportunity who want to stay and make things better. It's a long process. And what else? There's someone behind you back there. Okay. I don't have a microphone but I'll talk loud. Do you have which area of the world or the country has experience to improving that you're looking for the answer to Texas? Did you say Texas? Texas. Okay. But Texas is Well that's Texas. that's good information. Thank you for that. I'll I'll and look into that. What you did. Yes, sir. <laughs> the questions are okay, sometimes the answers are harder. Good question. There it is. (laughs) And I I, I appreciate your comment and your question, and I mean that sincerely. Uh, I'm on sort of a little personal crusade to try to raise the awareness of these problems and to look under every rock I can find for allies and ideas and solutions. And so I would welcome any comments or questions or criticisms you have about what I've outlined to you today. And here's the email. I'd be happy to hear from any of you. Yes, ma'am.
0: Thank you for coming and speaking to us today. It's been very interesting. Recently, little school districts in the various cities in southwest Virginia consolidated. There's a Wise County school district. Why didn't Norton join them, the city?
1: I, I can't answer that, I don't know. I know the school districts have been consolidating generally because of the financial pressures that they face. Uh, the school districts from Southwest Virginia came to the legislature this past year in January and plead pled for relief and for help because their money comes from a complex formula that's based essentially on how many students that they teach. Well, with the population decreasing, their dollars were decreasing, and they were really in a jam. They were in a jam such that there are some school systems in Southwest Virginia that were telling their students at the end of the day, when you come to school tomorrow, make sure to bring your own toilet paper because the school system can't afford it anymore. The teachers had stopped giving tests and quizzes on paper because they couldn't afford to buy paper anymore. So the financial pressures are very real. The legislature, to its credit, listened and heard, and in a very tight budget year, found an additional $7 million to bail out these school systems, that was wonderful. I applaud them for doing it, but that's a Band-Aid, and it'll be gone by next year. That's another reason that I believe strongly that they need to look at the long-term solutions to these problems if it involves bringing in more money or changing the way they carve up the money, changing the way they apportion the money, because you're not going to get a $7 million Band-Aid from the legislature every single year. It just doesn't work that way.
0: Hi, we have a question from one of our online viewers. Amy is watching us all the way from Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, Amy. (laughs) And she was wondering if you could possibly discuss or talk about any grassroots movements that are making any progress on this.
1: I wish I could rattle off a bunch to you, um, but I can't. There are a number of people, as I said at the beginning of the talk, who've read the book or heard me speak and are interested in these problems, and that outpouring of concern has been very encouraging to me. Uh, But it's not yet bubbled up in the form of any grassroots efforts. I received a wonderful email this morning from the new head of the Mountain Valley Community College who said the book, I'm not boasting, but she said the book, you know, perfectly captured the terrible situation that we face. And we are looking for answers and we are looking for allies. Maybe if I come back next year, I'll have a list of, of people or organizations that have stepped forward. Today, I do not.
0: So you have one more question right here in the front. Sure. Uh, You've uh, talked about the interview with the chancellor of the community college uh, system. What recommendations uh, did you both come up with in terms of the role of community colleges? And secondly, would you say a few words about infrastructure, transportation,
1: and the highway system? Sure. Um, The community college question first. The community colleges have really changed direction in the last several years and moved more from the first two years of a four-year college curriculum type uh, of education into one now that's trying to train people for uh, advanced manufacturing and related fields. It's greatly increased its emphasis on education and on technical matters to try to attract people to that. The chancellor of the community college told me, and I thought it was a very, a profound statement. He said, you know, we have greatly oversold the four-year bachelor's degree. That's not what uh, employers are looking for these days. They're looking for people with more specific technical training that they can apply in manufacturing situations themselves. And so that's his answer. I'm not smart enough to know the answer for education, except that I think it's painfully obvious that we need to spend some more money and to spend the money we are spending more wisely. Your transportation question is a very good one. I went to this uh, remote area medical clinic in Wise County and from my home in Gooseland, that's six and a half hard hours on the road. And you know that limits how often I go More importantly, it limits the people who live there, and it limits their ability to go somewhere else for a higher-paying job. It also limits their ability, frankly, to just function and live like we do here in the Richmond area with the transportation system that we have. Ours isn't perfect, but compared to what they don't have, it's light years above. It's a huge, big problem. There's no question about it. And And it's a problem that can be partially solved with money. Money's not the answer to all of this, but it's a part of the answer.
0: Well, you'll be up in, the, up in the lobby if you have any other questions or comments. But let's give it one more round of applause.
1: Thank you very much.